0: hello friends and welcome to another edition of in the ring with dan and benny i'm dan Sebastiano, joined as always by the bs express himself benny scala benny how are you doing today? Um,
1: I can't complain.
0: Well, uh, I know the the cold weather has been uh, impacting everybody. Has the weather uh, affected your dating life? Any? You always seem to have a good yeah. For well,
1: that. I don't know if it's the weather or not. So I, you know, I hooked up and I, you know, I picked her up and she was a lot, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, bigger than she was online. So I uh, oh, took goodness. her to an all-you-can-eat buffet, which is now closed, incidentally. So when I <laughs> I picked her up. Uh, <laughs> After the, the you know after we ate she, she waited outside I went to valet parking and uh, I I accidentally ran her over and she said why did you hit me and I said well I thought if I drove around you I'd run out of gas. So I am back <laughs> in the you know back in the hunt again.
0: Oh no, Betty that's terrible. You have the worst luck with women worst recently luck. it seems like. I, I don't know. I'm a nice guy too. I can't figure it out. <laughs> well, we have the pleasure of welcoming back a friend of the program. This man is a uh, historian author and as you can see from the wonderful uh, imagery behind him, quite the collector as well. This is uh, veteran writer Scott Teal. Scott, thank you so much for being here.
2: I appreciate you having me on the show, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking with you.
0: Well, I mean, we're g- I want to get right into it. The uh, on your your Crowbar Press website, front and center is the book "Raising Cain. It's uh, obviously the story of Frankie Kane, and and you again with your uh, uh, inputs to writing. The, the caption is the book that has been more than two decades in the making. Can you kind of tell us the story of how this came about?
2: Sure uh, I first met when I first uh, got back into the wrestling business i I left the wrestling business in 1980 when uh, Nick Gula sold his promotion and it wasn't until 16 years later that a guy uh, let's see maybe been 13 years later maybe 1993 a guy named Don Rowlett held a convention in Nashville called the National Uh, Collectors uh, Association, and uh, he invited guys from all over the place, and most of these guys had uh, disappeared, but he had uh, the spoiler, Don Jardine, Frankie Kane, who who whose book is about, Dick Steinborn, Tretch Phillips, Billy Wicks, uh, a ton of the old-timers, and uh, that's where I got interested in uh, writing, getting back into the wrestling business and writing about, writing books and magazines about it. And at that convention, I met Frankie Kane for the first time. Now, when I was young, uh, in 1968, uh, one of the first matches I saw was with a tag team called the Infernos, and they had a manager called named J.C. Dykes. And it, they were unbelievable. They did the uh, uh, loaded, but the, they loaded the boot. You know, they kicked their toe on the, and then kicked their opponent. And supposedly, loaded the uh, boot with steel, and they threw fire and. That just absolutely transfixed me, and it turns out that Frankie Kane was one of the infernos.
0: But no, Frankie, Craig, and I met
2: at, at, in 1993, at the convention, and we hit it off, and uh, we stayed in touch. Uh, we, we talked all the time on the phone through the years, and I had a small magazine called "Whatever Happened to?" For uh, did 53 issues of it, and Frankie and I uh, actually did a small—I uh, guess it was about 50, 60 pages book on his life, a little magazine, and uh, so we have been talking, and I've been recording for the past 20 some years, Uh, every time we get together, I'd go to, when I go down to the Gulf Coast Wrestlers Reunion in Mobile, Frankie and I would get together, and we'd sit and talk, and I always took my digital recorder, and recorded everything that uh, that he told me, I have, I mean, you just wouldn't believe, that book is just the first volume, really? Uh, definitely be a second volume It's probably going to be thicker than that one but I mean it could possibly be in three volumes this guy has uh, he's uh, almost 90 years old and he has a mind like a steel trap I mean he can he remembers I mean just everything and he's he's great storyteller but I have got so much stuff on him now I'm trying to uh, get ready to start on the second volume but there's so much stuff it's like a big jigsaw puzzle puzzle because you know, he, he when we talk, every time we talk, he'd jump around. You know, we get together, he'd tell me something from 1950s, and then he'd tell me right. something from 1940s. And I, you wouldn't believe. I've got files, I mean, stuff typed up. You just wouldn't believe how much there is. And I've got to somehow take it all and make it fit into the, the you know, end of the timeline so everything runs uh, as chronologically as it can.
0: Well, let me ask you something. You, you mentioned his time in the Infernos. Correct me if I'm wrong. That was... Uh, texas that was the amarillo territory
2: wasn't it yes well they started in uh yeah i have to think about that one they started in florida okay they then they were in north the the carolinas i mean they did big business in uh charlotte for jim crockett senior and they they jumped around they went to atlanta for leo garibaldi and they drew nothing but money i I mean i know you hear that all the time we sold the houses out we sold that house out Mm -hmm. but they were big money at that time. Uh, they were, you know, it was, it was just great. They were a super heel tag team. And then in 1968, yes, they went to Amarillo, and they had a long run there. Uh, at least a year it may have been longer than that. And it was at the end of uh, somewhere in that point in time. It was after Christmas, I believe, 68, uh, maybe 69. I can't remember which year it was. It was 68. Frankie actually left the team, and uh, Rocky brought Rocky Smith, who who was his partner under the mask, uh, brought in his brother, Curtis Smith, who wrestled in Mobile, Alabama, as the Blue Yankee. And from that point on, uh, uh, Curtis and Rocky were the Infernos. And uh, then Rocky died of a heart attack a few years later, and Curtis took on a, a, several different partners, you know, as different uh, uh, sets of Infernos o- over the years.
0: Okay, that's that's interesting. That's- um, <laughs> Benny, you've got... Uh... You got one of the great wrestling authors with you here.
1: Yeah, and, and, you know, Scott, really funny that you mentioned the Infernos because when I was, I guess, 13, it was, like, early 1969, I bought my very first wrestling magazine, which was Wrestling Review. And now, growing up in New York, uh, you know, all I was familiar with was Bruno and Dominic DeNucci and Spiros Arion and all those guys, Victor Rivera. You know, I, re- I get this magazine... And there's all these, you know, all these wrestlers that I had never seen or never heard of, and there was a very big article about the Infernos and J.C. Dykes. So when you said that, it kind of put a smile on my face. It's like I remember them, and I'm thinking like, wow, there's a whole other, you know, in in my mind, the only wrestling that existed as a 13 year old kid was what I saw on TV. I had yeah. no idea that there were other territories and you know other wrestlers and <laughs> things like that. So yeah, that was great. And then um, one one comment and then a question. So. Uh, my comment is, uh, and I used the analogy last time, I think I used that restaurant, Fogo de Chao, uh, to compare your crowbar press that, you know, Fogo de Chao is the best uh, all-you-can-eat uh, meat restaurant I've ever been to. And it, it, the thing is, like, you have you have anxiety almost because you don't know where to start. Right. And kind of the same thing, like, when I go on Crowbar Press, like, what book should I get next? I, I, I really don't know. But so now I want to drill in on the Buddy Rogers book because that's a little bit of a different analogy. That's like when I go to Manny's Steakhouse in Minneapolis, and you get that steak, and it costs you like $87, and you don't know, like, well, it's going to be so good. Like, I-, I want it all right now, but then you think, well, you know what? I'm paying a lot of money for it, so you know, I want to make it last. So I, I kind of like you're torn between, like, do you want to read the whole book now, or do you want to kind of pace yourself and enjoy it? And I wound up doing a little bit of both, but it, it was – I mean – the, the the end result like actually far exceeded my expectations. It was a great book. I really really enjoyed it. Right. And now great my talk. question is, um, I saw on Facebook today because you mentioned Nick Goulas is that you uh, you had made a comment about him and you really spoke very fondly of him. So can you maybe uh, for us that don't know uh, and I mean he's always mentioned with the with the great promoters like a Paul Bosch, you know and um, Roy Shire, Jim Barnett. Um, what made him such a great promoter?
2: Oh, Nick, I mean, you know, you, you hear so much bad about, about Nick, you know, for the most part, most people are dogging him, you know, but there's a lot of people that love Nick. Nick made a lot, of, a lot of people a lot of money, but if you weren't in the top echelon of guys, you know, like Jackie Fargo, Lynn Rossi, then, yeah, chances are you're going to be making a meager, you know, payoff. Uh, but Nick, uh, he had one of the biggest territories in, in the United States, yeah, He, you know, because we promoted Tennessee, Alabama, Kentucky. Uh, Arkansas. He, I mean, he, it was huge, and uh, Nick had been around since actually since 1940. And uh, just to give you a little um, background on what he actually gave to to Tennessee, uh, to the as far as starting the wrestling here, uh, there was a guy named Jack Price Jones who promoted wrestling in Nashville in the 1940s. Jack Price Jones was a former vaudeville uh, actor uh, and. He uh, came to Nashville, and I mean, yeah, to Nashville, and started promoting wrestling. Well, he promoted the heavyweights, and I, I, he probably promoted 15, 20 years. But over time, his business got worse and worse and worse. And the heavyweights were not drawing anything uh, by by 1940, which is when Nick Gulas came in with the light heavyweights. And the people here just took to to Nick Gulas's promotion. Like, you know, they loved it. Uh, of course, Roy Welch, you know, was partners with Nick, so Nick and, uh, Roy had a lot to do with it as well. But Nick was the guy, you know, the feet on the ground for the most part. Uh, so, but yeah, Nick was uh, good to me. Uh, I came to Nashville in 1974. I didn't go to the matches, maybe just a few times, and took pictures uh, at ringside. In 1975, uh, i met quite a few of the guys, but I wasn't in the business. You know, I wasn't. I had a, maybe, you know, there was a couple, few guys that would talk to me openly, you know, that I knew, but I I never made myself, you know, I never bothered the guys. I never went up and introduced myself. I I mean, even as a, when I was just a fan, I never asked for autographs. I just wasn't that kind of guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why the guys uh, liked me and and didn't mind me being around was because I wasn't a pest, you know, I wasn't just always trying to find out or trying to hang around. And, but in 1975, I went to a show with a wrestler named Don Green. He called and he said he was going to Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, uh, Andre the Giant was there. They're having a big uh, wrestling card in uh, what was it, Von Braun Civic Center? And Don asked me if I'd like to go with him. So I said sure. So I packed up my gear and we went to Huntsville, Alabama. Well, during the night, I was shooting pictures at ringside. Uh, half some sometime during that night, somebody came from the back and. Not, I could not tell you who it was, but they said Nick Gulas wants to see you in the back. Well, you talk about being scared. Uh, you know, I thought he was going to kick me out of out of the building for being at ringside, and you know, maybe I was causing some problems. You know, people couldn't see or something. So, but I get back there, and he asked. He he introduced himself, and he couldn't have been nicer. He says he wanted to know if I'd like to come work for him, taking pictures and doing the, uh, whatever you know, that uh, publicity type stuff, and. So well, of course, I jumped right on it, and within a month or two, uh, George Goulis came to me and asked me if I'd like to uh, publish a program for Huntsville, Alabama, uh, Nashville, Birmingham, Memphis. They already had somebody doing the arena programs, but Huntsville didn't. So I I accepted that and started publishing a program, and within a few months, I was that same program was going to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then. Uh, eventually uh, just short time later I bought the uh, rights to pr- uh, to actually sell p- publish and sell the program in Nashville as well okay so but so that's my that's my background with Nick Goulis. and Nick Goulis never did anything but treat me well he never caused you know he never never yelled at me you know everybody says he oh, yells at the guys he doesn't pay well well he was always good to me he let me sell my arena programs I called it the Slamogram <laughs> and sold those programs in all three of those arenas, plus any spot shows I wanted to go to. And Nick Goulis didn't charge me one dime. Now, how many promotions do you think would allow some kid to come in there? Well, I say kid—I was probably 22. I was 22 years old at the time. Would let a let a young guy like me come in, sell programs, make three, four hundred dollars, well, two hundred fifty to three hundred, four hundred dollars a week, and not ask for ten percent or some kind of percentage. Nick never, not one time, asked me for one single dime. That's don.
1: a pretty decent money for 40-something years ago, though. Right. Not, oh. too, not too bad.
2: Oh, it absolutely was. I, I didn't say a whole lot about it to anybody because the guys, uh, a lot of the guys, you know, they're making $25, $30, $15, 20 a night. So uh, most of them were making $200, maybe 250 Now, the top guys, yeah, they were doing really well.
1: I, but, I never heard, when I heard of, uh, like, low payoffs in that area, in that territory— I never heard his name mentioned. I usually heard Jerry Jarrett's name mentioned. Nick's was, name really wasn't mentioned that often.
2: Yes, that was the later years. Oh, if you talk to anybody who was around when Nick Goulas was in, in, uh, in actually promoting, say before, you know, he sold the business in 1980. But if you talk to anybody who was around then, that's probably what, you're, what they're going to say. He was a cheat, cheat. He cheated the guys. And yeah, he did a lot of stuff like that, I'm sure. But but all I can say is what how he treated me. Uh, and as far as Jerry Jarrett, yes. Uh, Nick, people, are, or what they usually say is Nick made terrible payoffs in the 50s and the 60s. And yes, he did, even the, even the 70s. But, and he may have paid $15, $20 for a shot or $25 for a shot. Well, that was 1970, 71, 72, he's paying $25. Jerry Jarrett, on the other hand, everybody talks about so glowingly, well, Jerry uh, he was paying forty, fifty dollars in the eighties. Now, what was forty and fifty dollars worth in the eighties compared to twenty-five dollars in the seventies? Right. It Really wasn't worth any more, you know. And I talked to a lot of guys who say the same thing. They just couldn't make a living, uh, right? That you know, in in Tennessee because of that, because of that reason. Whether it was Nick Goulas or Jerry Jarrett.
1: But I, 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 my understanding is some of the guys like a Rossi. He was there for a long time, wasn't he? Yes.
2: Oh, yeah. Len made good money. That's why I said the guy, the upper echelon guys, the guys that headlined the cards, Tex Riley, Len Rossi, uh, Tojo Yamamoto, Jackie Fargo. Those guys that they they made a good living. They they never had to worry, not at all. And they home most of them homesteaded here. They were here, most uh, if not not you know not so much the say first five, six, seven, eight years of their career, but after that they homesteaded here. They were here eh, all the time, and that in part. I have to say, probably was part of the downfall of Nick's territory because he kept so many of those guys here on top for, for t- really too many years. But but they drew well, even when I was uh, working for Nick and and doing the arena programs. You know, we we did okay. It was you know it, it fell off in the in the last couple couple years, but as far as I was concerned, you know we were drawing all right. Nothing like it had been in the fifties. I mean, in the fifties and early sixties. Uh, they were turning people away. I mean, thousands of people <laughs> just turning them away every week.
1: I'm I'm yeah, actually I, writing a story about a wrestler named Mario Milano. I don't know if you remember him or not, but yeah, so he's he spent uh, three years I think there before he went to Australia, and then you know then after that he came back to the WWF for a year, and then he went back to Australia for the rest of his life. But I think uh, Nick Goulas actually gave him the name Milano because he was Mario uh, Ponte- Pantera, I think La Pantera. Before in, in California, I think I actually think Nick gave him the name Milano after the city in Italy. I thought it was after the cookie. But that's me. You know, <laughs> like, I like food. so no,
0: Not, not quite. That's that stuck. Well, speaking of uh, B- Benny, that's actually funny because I was going to circle back. Um, something that's interesting when you talk about uh, when you talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, Frankie Kane is the, the difference. You mentioned the Infernos and the mask, but he was. At least a lot of the tapes I remember of him was the Sheik gimmick that he did, which was a a different. Uh, the the great Mephisto was a, a different because you had the Sheik as the territories knew, and he was you know he'd stab you with the, the and he was he was real violent, whereas Mephisto was more of a almost cartoony. Uh, Aladdin villain like a mystical Sheik and he was very you know throw fireballs And do all the supernatural stuff I'm wondering if, if in your conversations With him through the years who looked At at a burly white guy From Ohio and said Arab villain like how, how did that Come about
2: Oh, that was his own Own creation Frankie has always Been very entranced By the I don't want to say devil worshipping but the, By by the supernatural You you said It a minute ago He's always been interested in that and, you know, ghosts and things like that. So, and, you know, I don't know if I asked him, I'd have, you know, I'd have to find, I'm sure I've got it in my notes where he first came up with the idea. But, oh, uh, well, I, well, I can tell you, absolutely. I don't even know what I'm thinking. There was an old, a man named Julius Warnick who wrestled in Ohio in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s. He wrestled as Mephisto. Uh, and when you read Frankie's book, Raising Cain, he has a whole chapter devoted to this guy named Mephisto. The guy was absolutely phenomenal. People loved to watch him wrestle. He was a babyface, but he, uh, he, you know, he, he he drew the people to the arenas. And you'll you'll find him if you do you know research Ohio wrestling uh, in that area. He 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 worked on top all the time for for Al Haft, especially in Columbus and so frankie just loved this guy and i believe that that, that's the reason he took the name the great mephisto because he he worshiped mephisto the original mephisto frankie told me he said when he was a kid he used to shine shoes on the streets of columbus and he walked into a bar one day to to shine guy's shoes and and he said mephisto was sitting there at the uh uh at the bar and frankie said he couldn't move he said it it was just so odd to see him there because you don't think of you know, back then those guys were bigger than life. They were like right. movie stars today. And can you imagine walking into a, a bar today and seeing uh, Chris Pratt or somebody like that sitting there, you know, you'd be like, Oh my goodness, that's Chris <laughs> Pratt. Right. And that's the way he was, you know, with, with Mephisto. He said he just stood there and watched and stared at him. He said he couldn't even couldn't even move hard. He kept just stood there and looked at him. But that's where he got the name. And actually he came when he left, um, he was wrestling as Frankie Kane. Then he wrestled as the Infernos. And when he left the Infernos, he, he came back to Florida a short time later under a mask with Bobby Hart as his partner. They wrestled as Mephisto and Dante with Saul Weingroff as their manager. And they, that was a few months they wrestled up. They came up to Nashville for a short time under the hoods. And the next thing you know, he shows up in Florida. A wrestler shows up in Florida calling himself Mr. Smith. And it was it was Frankie Kane, barefaced. I I'm, he doesn't really know why they called him Mr. Smith or what the what the deal was. Uh, I think I've got some notes on we on some things we thought it might be. But they called him Mr. They the, the program said Mr. Smith is coming to Florida, and after two weeks, all of a sudden he changed his name to the Great Mephisto, and he had quite a run during that time. He uh, had a lot of matches with Jack Briscoe. Uh, Jack Briscoe was on top in Florida at that time. I mean, there was nobody better than Jack Briscoe you know, in, in those days. So, uh, so yeah, that's where the great Mephisto started. He had a huge run in in uh, San Francisco. He went to uh, Houston for Paul Bosch and booked the territory. Uh, and he ended up leaving because he couldn't get along with Fritz. Uh, Fritz, I guess, Fritz didn't like him, and uh, I don't know why, but... But you know, Frankie was doing really well in Houston. He was drawing a lot of money uh, as the booker. Right.
0: Well, if I can, maybe you can. You can shed some light. Um, you mentioned he he kind of tapped into the, the the supernatural, and you you, touched, you You said something that was interesting because in some research for this this show, um, I saw little blurbs that said the Great Mephisto was so. I don't want to maybe maybe it's cliche to say it, but he was so over in, in the, the media, that it actually, uh, Anton LaVey, the the founder of the Church of Satan, actually kind of, it, it got his attention because he saw this character. I'm wondering if there's any truth to that, or is that just one of those, you know, sounds good in the magazine wrestling stories? Oh, no, that
2: was all true. Uh, Frankie was at the matches, and somehow Anton LaVey, Frankie did a lot of supernatural stuff when he was in Frisco. Uh, he, uh, one of the things he did, he had a rat. Uh, that he brought on onto the set with him and he that rat would run up his arm and sit on his shoulder it was the most incredible i have i wish i could find a video of that but uh, it was it, people i've talked to said it was just incredible but he 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 would say things during the uh the interview about satan and not well not i don't think he used satan but he talked about you know supernatural things and he was so believable you know if you're sitting out there as a fan you're thinking this guy really is, you know, into the devil or something, even though he didn't say he was, you know, a Satan worshiper and somehow it caught Anton LaVey's attention and one night at the matches there in San Francisco uh, two great big I think he said two guys showed up it was Anton LaVey's uh, bodyguards, they showed up and they wanted it, they said Anton LaVey wanted to see him, well Frank knew who he was and they said that uh, Anton wanted him to come out to his uh, place (laughs) So he was a little bit worried about that. You know, I mean, you're going to the headquarters of the head devil worshiper. Right. You know, that would sort of put you off a little I, bit. But he yeah, said he went. I couldn't imagine. He said there was women out there that would just knock you out. It, it Just unbelievably beautiful is how he put it. He says they're just all over the place at, at Anton LaVleve. But he went out there, had a, had a nice talk with him apparently. And uh, I don't know, you know, if he saw how often he saw him after that but uh, yeah Anton Levay just really got into Frank's gimmick of the supernatural. and Frank somehow he, he, he used all these supernatural terms it, during his interviews and he he I think part of what he did he you know he can talk some Yiddish and uh, some different like Hebrew type stuff. so he'd work a lot of that into his interviews and it was it was pretty groundbreaking. you know I, I don't know anybody else that's ever done that. Uh, Kevin Sullivan, of course, you know, he did the devil thing in uh, Florida, but it wasn't, uh, to me, it wasn't the extent that Frankie did it. Frankie was so realistic.
0: Mm. That's crazy. That's, it's funny, you know, you, you see this, you, I should say you read the stories, and we've had guests in the past where you bring up something you saw and they're like, oh, that's that's complete, you know, that was looked good in the magazines. This The, the way that the, the story told it, where you know he it got his attention, I would have thought for sure that was entirely a character line. That's crazy to think that's that's real. Huh. Benny, what? Uh, you 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 said you yeah, you had your your list. What other questions do you have for well, Scott here?
1: Scott, you said something very interesting about you know you thought maybe one of Nick Goules's downfalls with it was that he didn't keep the territory fresh and he kept the same guys on top. And then you know you also mentioned the fact that the infernos did go from territory to territory. Um, so like, uh, and from my understanding, you know, you can only, you can only stay in a ter- territory for so long, like dusty Rhodes would stay in Florida for so long. Then he'd go up to New York for a little bit and mm-hmm. then he'd come back and you know, and, and then he was refreshed. Uh, I, my opinion is I think part of the current problem, and I know it's a different world now is, you know, these guys that you see on TV, you know, they're signed the long-term contracts. You're not that, you know, they're not going to go anywhere. I remember when I was a kid, I remember, uh, this guy named Rocky Fitzpatrick. He yeah. came into the WWF, and you know, and the guy was like invincible, you know, and he went through you know all the all the top baby faces until you know, of course, Bruno beat him at the Garden, and that was uh, Bob Orton Sr. Yeah, and I know you can't do that now because it's a different world. But do you think that part of the problem that the, the ratings are so low now is because like there is no refreshing? You know, we have pretty much seen the same guys, you know, week after week, month after month, and you don't you don't see that that
2: new influx. That's probably got something to do with it. Be honest, I'm so far out of touch with what's going on now. I couldn't tell you if any of those guys that are there now were there last year or the year before that or the year before that. My, In my opinion, and let me start out with this. I used to be like all the old, other old-timers, and I'm an old-timer when it comes to pro wrestling. I got started around the business and watching it in 1968 and started hanging around about 1970. So I'm sort of one of those old-timers who talks about how The business has changed so much. McMahon killed the business. You know, that's what I used to say all the time. He killed the business, you know, by uh, destroying all the territories. So the guys didn't have any place to learn their craft. Well, I've come around on that. You know, Vince didn't kill anything. Uh, Most of those territories were were on their butts. I mean, if they weren't doing bad, uh, yeah, granted, Charlotte was still doing great. Uh, Probably Houston was doing well. But one by one, those territories all began to fall. And by the time uh, Vince bought most of those guys out, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. You know, there weren't many territories that were really, really drawing the big money they had in the past. So, but Vince McMahon, um, I don't know. The one thing I will say as far as uh, why, if they're not drawing now, something that I've said before that I will hold to that I, that I still believe is true is they all look the same. They're all these big monsters and all these great big guys. It's like, Nick Gulas coming into Nashville in 1940. Man, he took over pro wrestling. You know, Jack Price Jones didn't hang around long. He was gone before too long because the heavyweights just didn't draw. People wanted to see the 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 you know the smaller guys fly around and do all their big high spots. And I, in my opinion, and again, I don't watch it, so I can't you know I can't attest any. I don't even read anything about modern day today's wrestling, but I would say that from what I've heard and what I've have seen. It's just the guys; they all look the same. They're all bulked up, and I don't know. Maybe they've gotten away from that now. No,
1: that's kind of funny because we had Andrew Anderson on last week, and he used the term "cookie cutter," which is pretty much what you're saying. And I use the term like that. You have they have this big giant sanitizing machine, and they throw everybody in there, and they kind of just like you know wash all their character out, and everybody comes out Mm -hmm. looking the same.
2: Yes, and and it's all it's all talk. You know, they are they they talk so much. There's no. I mean, for what I understand, again, I, I don't watch it, so I can't really say. But from what I hear, it, it, there's so much talking going on. It, 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 I, I didn't watch wrestling from when I got out in 1980. I watched the show on WTBS. I watched Jarrett's show for a few years. But by 1983, I pretty much quit watching it all. Uh, I just lost interest in it. I didn't watch a single TV wrestling show until about uh, probably six, seven years ago. Uh, I was spending uh, a couple days with Les Thatcher up in Ohio. And he watches religiously TNA, or he did at the time TNA, and some other Ring of Honor Okay. on Tuesday nights. He says, I know you don't watch this, he says, but I've got to watch it. He says, and I said, I'll watch it with you. I was interested in just seeing what they did. You know, I mean, I never watched ECW or anything. I just divorced myself pretty much from the business. Uh, at least the modern day stuff. So Les and I are watching it and I'm telling you, there was so little wrestling on. It was just, it was just absolutely amazing. It was just like, everybody's in the ring talking for 10, 15 minutes. You know, it it was just a constant interview, constant promos, constant, you know, there was very, very little wrestling and just, I I don't know, maybe I just caught it on a bad week, but I, I just couldn't get into it. And then the other thing, they had a had a, a single wrestler, one guy. He's in a handicap match against a midget, a grown man, and a woman <laughs> wrestler. There you go. And you, I couldn't believe it because the guy got beat by the midget, the man, and the woman. And I'm like, what good would that guy ever be to that promotion? Why would anybody even care about that guy anymore if he... Well, I, I take it back. It was the other way around. The guy beat those three. And right, I'm so thinking, what did
1: he gain by doing that?
2: Right. Yeah. Why yeah. would anybody care about any three of those, especially the guy? Yeah. When it was three against one, and the single guy beat them all three, and, and right. it, to, to me, it just destroyed the guy. You know. So, so I, I don't know. I just didn't get it. I just didn't understand it.
0: Yeah, he'll he'll tell the story. Yeah, you'll see it pop up from time to time. Steve Austin tells the story one of the big promotions he or promotions excuse me programs he was going to run in the the, the late 90s was against Mark Merrow and at I, I think it was a house, a house show or, or something that was one of the, the small televised events Mark Merrow lost a match against his wife uh, and Steve Austin they said he he walked back, picked up the phone, called uh, the offices in Connecticut, and said, "Who am I wrestling next week?" Because nobody is ever going to think this guy has a chance against me. He just lost to you know lost to a girl. Not to not to sound critical, but it, it killed the story and it killed okay. the entire mystique. Um, I'm curious, actually. That that's that's. I'm glad you, you mentioned that, Benny, because you talked uh, when you were talking about the the characters and and your personas. It, it, uh, it's often Benny mentioned the the transition how there you know in the territory days you would see new talent come in talent come and go some long term fans you'd recognize you know obviously so someone like uh, uh, Benny mentioned you know with uh, uh <clears throat> excuse me with Dusty Rhodes you know he came to town you knew who he was in, wow. in the case uh, going back to to Frankie came when he was in and, in and out of the masks. And did different characters. When he would bounce around, did, were there people that, that would watch the infernos or see the Mephisto and think, "Hey, I've seen that guy before. Did he ever have that, or was he so good at his characters that it didn't people didn't put it together?"
2: A lot of those t- guys back then, people didn't put it together. I mean, even when I was watching it, you know, there was guys that went in and out of the mask. You know, Ed- Eduardo Perez. You know, he wrestled in Florida for quite a while. Well, all of a sudden, there was this guy named, I believe it was the Bomber. And hit this, the bomber wrestlers, this mascot. I never put two and two together that it was Eduardo Perez. And I think a lot of the fans were that way. Yeah, I, I'm sure you had the smart fans. And once I began, of course, about 1970, I started corresponding with people around the country. You know, they used to have a, a, a article in the national magazine. It was like a fan club corner. And you could send in your name, your address, and say you wanted to be pen pals and trade programs, trade results and i started doing that and once i did man i'll never forget i can't remember who it was that sent it to me but i got uh, like six pages uh, printed of masked wrestlers and who they who was underneath the mask and a lot of them were guys that were wrestling at that point you know that just floored me i thought how do they know who these guys are (laughs) But but how cool is that to be able to go to the matches and. Here's Mr. Wrestling, of course that was later. I knew who Mr. Wrestling, but I'm just using it as an example. but it, Mr. Wrestling, and I get a sheet in the mail from another territory that says Mr. Wrestling is Tim Woods. So what do I do? I go to the library, I look or you know to the microfilm machine, look up t- Tim Woods or wherever he was, and try and find out some more information. But that was so cool back then to be a fan and be one of the few who knew was under those masks. Yeah, the people that had been around for decades <laughs> you know, as wrestling fans. A lot of them knew who those guys were. Frankie, I, you know, I don't know if most people... I, 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 to be honest, I don't remember anybody saying when the Great Mephisto was wrestling in Florida where people knew that was one of the Infernos. For one thing, the Infernos wore the long tights. They wore the singlets. So, you know, their bodies were pretty much covered up. But I don't think anybody ever put two... and I, I, I say anybody. Very few people put two and two together and knew that Frankie Kane, a.k.a. the Great Mephisto... Had once wrestled in Florida as one of the infernos.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I can't help but laugh. Uh, the, the stories trigger memories. One of my favorite tapes that I had <laughs> as a kid was it, what I, I obviously it was part of the show. But when when the machines introduced their new partner of giant machine. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, you you saw the chops sticking out from under the mask and you heard the <laughs> voice. And it's like, I mean, you, everybody knew. I mean, who's the only seven foot four guy you had in the locker yeah. room? But <laughs> I, I re, it's funny when you talk about recognizing like, hey, I know that guy under the mask. It reminded me. That's funny. Benny, I, I saw you. Uh, I saw you wave in there. Did you do that, that pen pal thing, too?
1: Well, yeah, I think we talked about that the last time. Mine was in November 1969. And, you know, it just. Proves what a different world it was that you could put your. I mean, first of all, you could put your address, uh, you know, in, in a published magazine, you know, so yeah. for the world to see, and you know, and people actually wrote letters back then. People took the time to handwrite a letter, you know, put put a stamp on it, and then, you know, as a kid, like you know, as an adult, you, you, you dread the mail because it's, you know, mostly bills, you know. But as a kid, when that mailman came and there was a letter from your pen pal, that was an epic event.
2: Absolutely, and, and the funny thing was, two of the guys. And there may have been more. I can't can't think of them right offhand. But two of the guys that I corresponded with the most at in the at first, which was around 1970, first of all was a guy named Jim Painter. He became he started wrestling later on as Jim Lancaster. And the other one was a guy named Ted Lipscomb who wrestled as Ted Allen. He also wrestled under the hood as the as the Nightmare. You talk about fans. They were big time fans. I mean, we used to trade results. I'd send them all the stuff from Florida jim big jim he'd send me the results and all the news from dayton ohio ted would send all the stuff he could find from atlanta it was really cool It was a little network is what it was you know we it wasn't they weren't you know we didn't have smart sheets or anything like that back then Uh, it was strictly bulletins with results and who beat who and that kind of thing Uh, and some of them yeah they'd print things like uh so and so is wrestling under a mask and so and so or so-and-so who was a good guy here, is wrestling in California now is a bad guy. Yeah, the promoters didn't even like those, even though they weren't smartening anybody up, but they just didn't like the fact that people knew that these guys were wrestling in other places. And it's funny, like you said in the beginning of, of this podcast, you said something about you didn't realize there was wrestling in other states. I lived in Bradenton, Florida, so the TV I got came from Tampa, Florida. I watched that a couple months probably until one day... I turned onto a, uh, somehow I got onto a, you know, back then you could see stations in other cities that were far away, but they were very snowy. You know, it isn't like right. a beautiful picture. Like, yeah. Three in the morning. Maybe you could. Yeah. So right. I, I, found, I found that there was wrestling in Fort Myers because my antenna was picking up this really ghosty image. I could barely hear it, but I heard Gordon solely say this Tuesday night in Fort Myers in the armory. So I thought, my goodness, they're having wrestling in Tuesday night in Tampa and Fort Myers. So I thought, man, they got wrestling twice a week in in in, in Florida. Of course, right. it wasn't too long after that I learned it was also in Orlando, Miami, Jacksonville, Tallahassee, you know, and all the other towns. Uh, but it, it was back then. People had no, most people had no idea that there was that Jack Briscoe might wrestle Dory Funk Jr. in Tampa on Tuesday, and on Monday night he wrestled him again. Thursday night in Jacksonville he wrestled him again. People just didn't know that, and that's one of the reasons the promoters didn't like the dirt sheet. I mean, the uh, bulletins back then it was because that let people know that there was wrestling in other places other than Florida.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny. I've mentioned it before on the show. Growing up, uh, we traveled, and, and at the time, living in Maryland, I had a ten-channel, ten and thirteen. Thirteen was from Baltimore and ten was DC. So on one channel you had WWF and on the other channel was uh, the the NWA. So you could see, you know, uh, Hulk Hogan and and Savage and then flip over and there's Flair, Steamboat, and I thought that was the coolest thing. And then the sports channels started covering. You know the AWA, and here's news from California, and this happened in Florida. And as a kid, I mean, this granted, this was the 80s. Like the territories had already started to die out, but realizing that there was worlds of wrestling that I'd missed, I, you know, that's when I fell in love with the. You you could get the territory tapes, and you started seeing, you know, Kevin Sullivan in Florida, and obviously all the stuff Lawler and and you know the Cowboy did in Tennessee, and then that Von Ericks and the Freebirds and. And it's just, it's cool to to think like you know you're never gonna have that experience again. Um, one of the big news stories recently with NBC buying the streaming rights for the WWE network. You know you're gonna you there's there's rumblings that NBC might end up buying the WWE altogether. And right. it's like imagine I mean today you have the entire catalog on your phone on your TV. Plus the internet, plus you can you, you, you search any name on YouTube, you can find matches and interviews and moments. It, it, the mystique of like digging up the old wrestling is gone, and I think that's a shame.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's funny uh, back, back then, the thing, that, well you know, I liken it to Saturday mornings. Saturday mornings, uh, I, I used to stay up on Friday night from 11:30 until uh, about two o'clock. we had a program called Shock Theatre. It was hosted by a guy in a Frankenstein costume, and it was two horror movies, those old-time 50s black-and-white horror movies. Right. Some of them may have been colored, but I had a black-and-white TV, so <laughs> I remember them as being black-and-white. But but even though I was up till 2 o'clock Saturday morning, 6.30, 7 o'clock Saturday morning, I was awake. I was ready for Saturday morning cartoons, and I watched cartoons from 7 o'clock until 11 o'clock or whenever they went off. Kids yeah. don't have that these days, and I know, yeah... They've got access to all kinds of stuff. They watch whatever they want when they want. You know, I'm the, having
1: a deja vu moment. My sister and I would actually take the TV guide, and then we like we'd circle the, <laughs> our, all our cartoons for Saturday morning. Like you know, it was the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour. Then there was Tom and Jerry, and like yeah. there was a, like the Banana Splits. There was a whole you know we had like five hours of cartoons we had to watch.
2: Yeah, we did. I did the same thing. My wife still whenever we see a TV guide in the uh, store. I mean, they still have that thing today. I've never oh, looked yeah. at. It. In decades, yeah. she she laughs every time we see one in the grocery store. She say, "You remember you used to get one every week, and you'd circle all the shows we wanted to <laughs> watch that week."
1: Well, now I feel <laughs> redeemed. It wasn't just me.
0: No, you. <laughs> no. So I was going to say I'm I'm the young one in this conversation, and I used to circle the TV guide because you know I, I grew up in the in the '80s era. Of, you, our, my Saturday morning cartoons was like He Man and you know the GI Joe and and all the all the, the the toys that were big when i was a kid you know yeah. back when back when the cartoons were just 30 minute commercials to tell you to go buy go buy the toys
2: absolutely yep
0: <laughs> but yeah that that's sort of the way
2: it is with wrestling uh, you know when i when i was a uh, you know a, a young fan in 1968 69 when i first started watching the highlight for me was get i'd watch wrestling on saturday you know, usually you could find, and Saturday you could find out, they'd tell you who's going to be at Fort Homer, Lee Army on Tuesday. I couldn't wait to get up on Sunday morning. And as soon as I got up, I ran out in the yard, got the newspaper, and I looked in on, on in the sports section until I found that nice little ad, that box ad that they put for the pro wrestling. I could not wait. Even though I had heard, you know, on the Saturday program, who was going to be wrestling, I couldn't wait to get that newspaper so I could see the ad for that coming week's show up and, uh, at Fort Homer, Hesterly Armory in Tampa. And it's the same with a lot of things like that, you know. Uh, I, I couldn't wait to get mail from guys like Jim Lancaster, Ron Dobritz, uh, Ted Allen, Ted Lipscomb. It was so cool when you get something in the mail. You know, it's like, because these days, we get something every day. You know, a lot of right. people get something. Two, two three times a week, you're getting something from Amazon. It's not exciting anymore. But yeah. man, back then, it was the most cool thing. To get actually get something in the mail with your name on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, heck, even yeah. even today, you know, you you pull out that stack of junk mail, bill, you know, uh, ad ad junk mail, and then there's every once in a while you get some letter or something from, you know, holy crap, it's a real piece of mail, and you know you're excited again. Well, Dan, uh-huh. as you get older, then you
1: get the things for the uh, ARP, and then when you get a little bit older, then you get the ones for the prepaid cremations. <laughs>
0: so you, got, you got that
1: to look forward to.
0: By, yeah. <laughs> by the, the the prepaid funeral plots, well, it's right?
1: Prepaid. It says prepaid free cremation, which I don't understand. If it's prepaid, how is it free? I mean, it does. It's kind of a contradiction.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I get you know. all that. <laughs> Betty, you you had a good a good thought going. I'll uh, I'll give you another question here. What, what do you got for uh, for our guests right now?
1: Well, I want to make a comment because actually, my last story for pro wrestling stories, there was a piece of it that was cut out, and I. I want to I want to now I can say it because uh, it wasn't really relevant to the story. But it's kind of funny how like wrestling it has such a huge impact on what we become later on. So when I first started watching right around the same time as you, Scott, it was late 68, early 69. I would watch the Capitol Wrestling Show uh, from Washington, D.C. It was hosted by Ray Morgan. And what I actually did was I bought these blue index cards, I guess, like five by seven index cards. And I had one index card for every wrestler. So I had one for Johnny Rods. I had one for Lou Albano, Tony Altamore, Eduardo Carpentier. And I recorded like every, there was a running, the date, the opponent, whether they won or lost, what their one loss record was and what their percentage, winning percentage was. And then I had another notebook where I wrote all the results, like in summary, like, and you know, if, if Earl Maynard, uh, beat, uh, like say, uh, um, uh, Baron Sucluna beat Thomas Marin. Well, he defeated Thomas Marin, but if Earl Maynard beat Bull Ramos, so if the baby face won, well he flattened bull Ramos, like I had to yeah. use that adjective. It wasn't just defeated. you know if the baby face lost, he lost, but you know if the if the good guy won, he whipped or you know flattened or squashed so but the thing is like I took I had this elaborate record keeping, and I want to be an accountant, so i i think in large part, that was my start. was wrestling isn't that
2: cool? yeah, yeah. do you still have that book?
1: I wish I wish I had those index cards and that, you know, I, I mean, some of the guys were, you know, they never, like for Spaceman Frank Hickey, I don't think ever won a match on Capitol Wrestling and then a guy <laughs> like Victor Rivera never lost a match but no, I, I just, when I think of it, it's like, that's where I got my start
2: Yeah, one of the first guys I saw, uh, one of the first matches, uh, really, probably it was probably the second show I ever went to it was right there in Bradenton, Florida where I grew up, it was at the Armory And it's all I can remember about, I can remember some of the guys in the matches. I remember the the seats were so close to the ring. You could almost reach out and grab the ropes. I mean, it was so tight. That little armory was so small and space man, Frank Hickey, two things about that show. I remember space man, Frank Hickey was one of the wrestlers. He came out there. He had the skull cap on. He had that big cape, and he grabbed both sides of the Cape with his hands. And he, When they introduced him, he flapped it back and forth like this and walked across the ring. It was the funniest thing I think I'd ever (laughs) seen. It was hilarious. And the other thing was a guy named Eduardo Perez. He was a big name at one time in Florida at that time. He was, uh, you know, he was undercard pretty much and he did a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of jobs. But he was a great, great performer, great wrestler. But I'll never forget somebody hit him in the chest with their forearm, like, He blows his breath out, and when he does, he blows his great big glob loogie out of spit. And it goes flying from one corner that he was in all the way to the other side of the ring. Now, it's about two feet from the ropes. I was loving the matches, but all I could think of the rest of that match was which one of those guys was going to roll in that booger first. (laughs) It was a fun, I mean, it was this huge thing, too. And the, they say, guys that I've talked with since, then, is that he used to do that all the time. He'd keep that caught up, uh, you know, collected up in his mouth. And when somebody hit him, he'd just, boom, he'd spit, and that thing would go flying across the ring. But it was so funny to watch those two guys rolling around and taking each other down. I'm just fixated on that book, on that big yeah, loop, waiting funny. for one of them to roll on it. <laughs> it's funny, funny the things you remember, you know, in your life. <laughs>
0: You know, it's funny. The first show I ever sat front row at, um, you, you know, they they do the 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 handoff. The wrestler, mm-hmm. the the security, whatever you want to call them, that were sitting at ringside during the handoff. The the security guard dropped the blade. The little, you know, and and they're kind of like all looking for it, but not quite. And as a kid, I thought it was like, what what's going on? And years later, I'd completely forgotten about it. Years later, my wife and I went to a indie show here in Virginia, and they had said something, they happened, they dropped the blade. And they were a lot more obvious about it, like their flashlights during the match, you know? And, it, it brought it up, but yeah, you're as a kid. I'm thinking, cause I didn't know any better. You know, to me, it was still real. Like, right. what what's everybody looking for? Like, the guy started bleeding, and now everybody's like, are they cleaning it? Like, what? And, <laughs> and it, it realized later he they had dropped it because he finally picked it up. But it, it's funny how you, you can get fixated on the little things. But
2: when would that have been? What what era time frame would that
0: have been? Uh, the the. <sighs> I, late 80s early 90s I, I would probably 1991 okay. yeah. somewhere in there i can
2: see that when you first started telling the story what crossed my mind is i couldn't believe one of the wrestlers would hand off a blade to a security guy i mean when i was in the business man i'd say what if something like that happened that there'd be you know what to pay i mean right. they they did not bring anybody into the business and explain they didn't expose the business in oh, any yeah, way this
0: this was, I mean, what was it, eighty? What was it, eighty-eight when they had the, yeah, uh, eighty-eight or eighty-nine when they they had the sixty minutes um, expose and yeah, you know, I mean, it, it had already been revealed by then. And then, of course, later on, when Vince McMahon went on live TV and told uh, it took you know spilled the beans, although he was they you know he was doing it because he didn't want to have to pay the sports fees. For, if, he, if he if he classified the WWF as a theater, he wouldn't have to pay any of the sports authority fees.
2: Yes, absolutely. So. <laughs> that, that just struck me, though, because I, I, I at first I thought you were talking about the old days and it just. I, oh, I, no. I, yeah.
0: No, you're you're absolutely right. They wouldn't have. And I assume it was probably because it was a, I, I, a handoff or, or they were trying to clear it out, you know. Um, right. But yeah, it, it's funny. Benny, uh, as we wrap up, I'll give you the last question.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask, Scott, I call it my, like your WTF moment. Like when you first kind of question, like what the hell's going on here? So mine was, you know, again, I started watching 68, 69 Capitol wrestling. One of the mainstays there was Johnny Rods who wrestled forever. And, and I mean, I think he could probably still wrestle if he wanted to, but I remember about two or three years later. So, uh, I could all of a sudden in the early seventies on a UHF channel 41 out of Patterson, New Jersey, I could watch wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. Well, th- there's this wild man named Jabba Rook. And ah, ah. still yep. was, had the initials JR. And I'm thinking, holy crap, that looks just like Johnny Rods. But it can't be. But then I look, it's like, holy crap, that's Johnny Rodling. And I kept in my mind like going back and forth, like, well, how could it be? Because, you know, this is Jabba Rook. It can't be Johnny Rods. but he's got the same boots and everything. And so that was my first time. I guess I was sixteen or seventeen, where I questioned like something's
2: going on here. And so I was just curious <laughs> what your what your moment was. You know, I really never had a moment like that. I remember going. I probably watched wrestling. I watched wrestling on TV on Saturday. I think it was Saturday night at seven o'clock, and then Sunday afternoon they repeated the same show at one o'clock in the afternoon on Channel Ten in Florida. I watched it both times. It was the same exact show, but I always watched it. And I probably I. believe i watched wrestling on tv probably three four months before i somebody somebody said something to me about it being quote unquote fake so it, it got me thinking and and i and i you know i just sort of when they said that i said oh i know that you know and i guess other people had said that as well and i just sort of shrugged it off. i knew there was something going on you know but I never really had a moment where something you know, maybe realize that, hey, they did this, what, what's going? You know there, there's more to this behind the scenes. I sort of at some point it just sort of like osmosis. it just sunk into me that, yeah, something was going on. And the strangest thing is, what got me interested in pro wrestling, as far as what I'm doing, as far as writing uh, trading results with fans and uh, mag- writing for magazines, taking pictures, It wasn't the wrestling, even though Florida had the greatest wrestling ever. It was phenomenal. The angles, the programs were great. But what got me interested was I always was just dead determined. I wanted to know who, if it's fake, who is it that tells, go back to Eduardo Perez, who is it that tells Eduardo Perez that he's going to lose? And when do they do it? And how do they do it? That's what fascinated me about pro wrestling more than the storylines and that's why I followed it for so many years and started studying it and started researching the old history of the promotions. I was absolutely fascinated, and I wanted to learn more and more. Two years before I came up to Tennessee, about 73, I really started getting smartened up. I had a couple friends in the business, and uh, they started talking a little more openly, not a lot, but a little bit, but I was sort of wise, you know smartening myself up. Uh, so that's really how it happened with me. It was just a gradual thing. And okay. then, then when I came to Tennessee, of course, I, I started hearing all kinds of stuff. Cause I started meeting a lot of the guys that was even before I started before I, you know, Nick Gould asked me to come work for him. So, uh, and I remember carrying a little sheet in my, <laughs> I had a little piece of paper in my wallet and every time I'd hear a word, they'd say like blade. I, and then I'd find out what that meant. I'd go to my dorm room and I type it on that sheet paper blade means an object a wrestler uses to cut himself. <laughs> and I carried this little piece of glossary.
1: Paper.
2: Yeah. It was, a, it was a little glossary. Yeah. I carried it in my wallet with all these terms. And every time I heard a term, heel baby face, whatever I'd write it down on the, and I type it up on this little sheet, but I wish I had that sheet today. I don't, Love that. I don't know where it disappeared to. That's
0: funny. Yeah. The, uh, the one that, that always got me uh, when I first started writing and research was the uh, powdering out they'd say yep. you know he they they locked up he did and he powdered out i had no idea what that meant somebody had to explain <laughs> it was just slang for rolling out of the ring and it's like oh okay yes but that was that was the one that was the term that always it's a language
1: unto itself
0: it it really is it's yeah. it's a it's like talking to talking to carnies or or veterans you know you have this this unique language yep. that that People, and I mean, the barrier has been broken, but back then you, you could you could sit at a bar and have a full-blown conversation and nobody would know what the hell you were talking about.
1: Absolutely. I'll like, tell a friend we're going home, and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like <laughs> Right. <laughs> That's,
2: That's funny. True. I'll tell you another good one. Ko, I met a guy named Koatiki. He was probably one of my best friends in Bradenton, Florida, in, in the wrestling business. Uh, he was from Hawaii. His brother, uh, you're probably familiar with Tor Kamada. Oh, that, Yeah. That, that was Tiki's brother. Their last okay. name is Maka. And Tiki was training this guy named Bill Dexter. Bill and I, he, uh, Tiki had me come out to the YMCA and Bill and I would wrestle. And, but he's training him to be a pro wrestler. Well, Bill told me that when he first met Tiki, he says Tiki walked up to him and, and held out his hand and gave him the wrestler's handshake, which is a limp handshake, like you're shaking hands with a fish. You know i uh, I guess y'all are familiar with that that way you know the guy you know the guy's loose he he's, he's he's one of the boys well bill thought he was gay because he had this loose handshake. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I'll never forget oh, him. No. Can't, can't, that's that's a joke you can't tell today that's fine yeah you're
2: right if you want to cut that out you can but it, it's not oh, no.
0: <laughs> no we uh uh Be- Benny Benny recently uh, laid a challenge down uh, to, to Dominic De and Dominic told us a story on the episode that Benny laid the challenge down. And that was a story we probably should have edited, but uh, we, we had a good time with it. And that's something, Scott. Hopefully, you'll get to cover in one of your books, The Future uh, Mistake from the Lake, Benny. You and your uh, a, a, what eighth, seventh decade, eighth decade, you said no, it's,
1: it's Dominic's eighth decade. If he, it, I, I issued a challenge to him for one last match because he's wrestled in seven decades. Hasn't wrestled in the 20s, and uh, we're going to just uh, – the winner gets polenta. I don't know if you know what polenta is, Scott. No. It's it's an Italian dish with – I guess it's cornmeal and it's, sausage.
0: It, Italian grits, basically. Oh, cool. But, but really good Italian grits.
1: Uh-huh. So that's going to be the grand prize. So, And we have a location. I even have Nikita Brezhnikov said he'd be my trainer – my manager, rather. And so we we got it all set up. We're just waiting for Dominic to accept the challenge.
2: That's great. I wish I wish somebody'd sit down with Dominic and get his get him to do a good long shoot interview. We
1: we had him on the show. I and you know I I actually did a story on him uh, for pro wrestling stories, and I actually I got a good number of his you know his yeah. friends from back in the day, like Davey O'Hannon and Johnny Rods and uh, Mario Fornini. All and Nikita, all I mean, and they all think the world of the guy. And it was, mm-hmm. I mean, of all the stories I've written so far, that one is by far my favorite.
0: Cool, and and I'm sure Scott, you've had it interviewing people. Dominic, we've had him on the show once, more than once. You, you, he, you, he could talk for an hour on one topic, and by the time he's he's done with the story, you feel like maybe he covered two percent of what he has to say. The yeah, case I of staying with wrestling. Right, he, he could be our the guest for every show for the rest of the year, and I don't think we'd scratch the surface no, of the stories he's got not. to tell.
2: And it's amazing. you got guys like that. I've talked to so many of them like that. They, they, you ask them a question, and they'll talk for an hour. But there are other guys, and I'm talking about main event guys, and the guy I always use as an example, because I told people I was going to be interviewing doing a shoot interview with Archie Goldie, the Mongolian Stomper. Stomper, yeah. And everybody, oh, that's going to be the greatest interview ever. He's just phenomenal. He's a legend. He was, oh, well, I talked to Archie, and I I interviewed, I had 18 pages of questions that I've developed over the years. I asked him every single question on those pages, and there's hardly anything you can think to ask about pro wrestling that isn't on those pages. I asked him every single question. We wound up with, a grand total of an hour and forty minute shoot interview. Jeez. He had no just half the questions he just didn't have any any information about. It's amazing. But uh, somebody else you asked those questions, like you say, I could ask one page of those 18 pages right? and, and have enough for a book. JJ Dillon, man, what a guy right. Frankie Kane. Frankie Kane, if you ever sit down with Frankie Kane, he can talk. I bet we've done 120, 30 hours worth of interview work. Wow. I mean, that's it's phenomenal, crazy. The stuff he remembers.
0: That's that's awesome. Well, you know, that's a, a good segue um, as we wrap up here. Frankie Kane the, the book is called Raising Cain, uh, Frankie Kane and Scott Teal uh crowbar press that's if i'm correct at www.crowbarpress.com uh you name a wrestler there's a book in there on him as well as your uh the the venues uh series which is a big thing and and then like i said as you can see behind you any anything on history and posters uh from uh we've got uh, ollie anderson you mentioned uh, jj Dillon, tony atlas frankie kane you name them they're in there crowbarpress.com, the legendary author, Scott Teal. Scott, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you. Uh, we're
0: definitely going to have, again, you talk scratching the surface. Every every book you wrote, every article you have has a story. So we will definitely love to have you back in the future. No, I only uh, asked two back. of
1: my ten questions. So, yeah, definitely has to come back.
0: See, you've you got more pages of questions because your stories are just so good.
2: <laughs> thank
0: you. I enjoy it every time I'm on the show.
2: I enjoy it. I really do.
0: Pleasure. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank so, you. Uh, for, good,
2: night.
0: good night, Scott. Bye-bye. Wow, that's, that's great. I love talking to other authors, and I'm sure you do as, as a journalist yourself, because it's not just the stories. It's the stories about how he got the stories, like right. you know, the interviews. The, the, when he explained meeting him at the convention and, and how one chance meeting led to 130 hours of interview, he said, and... Some of the books, I mean, I don't, uh, again, I, I recommend, and I'm not hyping it up just because he was a guest, but Scott has some wonderful works out there. Uh, and a lot of them I like because they're they they they're, they're a story. It's a conversation. It's not a, you know, you read some biographies and it's this happened and then this happened and then this happened. It's a conversation. You, re- it, you read the book and you feel like it's the person telling you a story. You're sitting down to dinner, and Frankie Cain's telling you about that time he was in San Francisco. I, I just, I love that work. Uh, I can't recommend enough. Scott Teal, we're going to put a link in, below uh, in the video for uh, crowbarpress.com. Uh, so as we wrap up tonight, Benny, you have any closing thoughts?
1: No, I was just going to say that I think I've read four of his books. And I, I just ordered the Ivan Koloff book. And again, I'm looking forward to that one. Net, every one of those books, they're different, but they're, each one of them is great in their own Right. Um, Nikita Brezhnikov, when it was real, that one's a little bit different because that one actually takes you from the perspective of a fan. You know, J.J. Dillon tells you his story and very eloquently. You know, Buddy Rogers is more of a, it's a compilation, it's a history. I mean, they're all different, but they're all great.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. And like I said, uh, some of the works I've read of his and uh, the interview, especially you mentioned J.J. Dillon, I liked because that was such a just... The the unique perspective that came out of that is if that sounds I know that sounds cliche when you're talking about an interview book, but the unique perspective he had having literally done everything in the business.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I I love it everywhere. Been everywhere. Yeah,
0: basically. I mean, you know, that's one thing. We talked about how things change. I mean, we've got the next show coming up. uh, We're going to have an interview with uh, Ivan Putski, one of the the best of all time, easily one of the greatest names. Uh, You you don't get stories like that 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when someone's interviewing John Cena or Randy Orton, Brock Lesnar or whatever. They're not going to have stories of... The different promoters and yeah, they traveled. I mean, you know, WWF, WWE, WCW. You guys were on the road 300 days a year. But there's a difference between being on the road with doing house shows for the same company and traveling the territories. You know, you don't have the stories of of six guys sleeping in a van or you know renting a hotel room and driving. You know, you, you don't. You we're know, spending
1: yeah, spending Christmas at a diner together. I mean, things like that because they're wrestling away from home.
0: Exactly. I mean, yeah, like I said, all, there's a difference between being on the road and being on the, the road in the era of the territories. Yeah. And that's, it, it's unfortunately, it's a story that it's just not quite the same. But yeah, we, we've got it, and that's what we do. We cover it, we love it. So uh, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spastiano. As always, happy wrestling, everybody, and good night.
1: Good night. Good night.